The NHS knows that it can't make the country happy. The NHS knows it can't fix the fabric of society. So why why are we not more able to, to welcome in these other supports in, into the consulting room? And that should include churches in the same way as it could include a support worker or a social worker or a more formally organized type of support. Hello and welcome to another episode of Time to Grow. Today I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Rob Waller. He's a fellow at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's also studied medicine at Cambridge, holds a postgraduate degree in cognitive behavioral therapy. He's the author of many books and is the director of the Mind and Soul Foundation, which is a group doing some really impressive work to help equip, educate, and encourage people around issues related to mental health. My name is Toso, and just to remind you, I am not a mental health expert, but considering the fact that Rob's been working in this space for over two decades, I think it's safe to say that he is one. So I hope you're able to take something away over the next score of minutes. And to that end, I've left a bit of information in the show notes below, including some links to helpful resources you might find on the Mind and Soul Foundation website. So, Dr. Rob Waller. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. No, it's great to be here and discuss these really important topics. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off kind of big picture and just get a sense of what your perspective of wellness is. What is, in your estimation, the definition, a good working definition of wellness or well-being? Yeah, I think people often ask doctors what what wellness is or what health is. And, you know, I work for the National Health Service, yeah. but it's probably better called a national illness service because the, the focus really is on on symptoms and illnesses and, and diseases because those are things that doctors can can make a difference in. Um, it's not really a national health service in that regard, but actually I think health and wellness are really important terms. The, the, the World Health Organization defines it not just as the absence of, of illness. It's not just a matter of not being ill. It's the presence of both physical well-being, mental well-being, spiritual well-being, social well-being. They go so far as to mention those things. So I think it's a, it's a positive state of wellness. And that's actually really important because actually those things can exist alongside symptoms. So if I give you an example, so supposing you're, you're diabetic and you have to take insulin injections on a daily basis, without that insulin, you can die. So you still have symptoms, you still have an illness but it is perfectly possible for you to have good physical health, good mental health, good spiritual health, good social health, and a, a, a sense of well-being, despite the fact that you have an illness. That's a really interesting perspective because it flips the narrative on its head, right? It allows us to think of health as more of um, a vitality, a, a flourishing that happens versus just something that we're trying to, to mitigate the opposite of. So I think that's a really good definition. Another question that kind of follows that up, you said that even the NHS kind of recognizes the need for uh, spiritual health. And I know that you are somebody who is affiliated with the church. You are somebody who is a Christian. How does that play in? And what is the role maybe of faith in healthcare? And maybe if you could care to elaborate on that. I, I don't want to sort of lump faith and wellness completely together, but faith is one of the positive things that, that we can bring to life. And particularly as we think about illness, a lot of illnesses today are quite chronic. So for example, if you go back a hundred years, infant mortality was, was high, people would die or they would die 
in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, of, of an untreatable illness. But, but nowadays we, we have antibiotics, we have heart transplants and pacemakers, we even have cures for, for many types of cancer. So, so what's happening is people are living longer with chronic illnesses. So actually one of the really important things we need to think about is the focus is not necessarily on cure, because we're probably not gonna be cured of our arthritis, let's say, until we get to heaven and we get that resurrection body that we've all been aiming for. Oh, yeah. um, but what is it that can bring faith? What is it that can bring wellness in the presence of perhaps some symptoms of illness? And faith is definitely one of those things. And, you know, it needs to exist alongside the other markers of, of, of wellness, such as, um, you know, meaningful activity, um, a, a roof over one's head but but faith is something that that gives us i think a perspective it gives us meaning even people who wouldn't necessarily subscribe to the, the christian faith still see the importance of of having some kind of meaning making in our life as being important to well-being the nhs has always had a slightly rocky relationship with with spirituality because of course the nhs is not the church however the church used to be the NHS. You know, if you go back to the times of the monasteries, they they were the places of healing. Yeah. And yes, science has, has brought an awful lot to, to, to what medicine does, but there's still that role. And I suppose I kind of think about it is that, that perhaps doctors have a role in, in treating and intervening, but that the church has still got a massive role in those other less tangible, more ongoing, more holistic aspects of health, such as well-being such as community those things are really important oh wow can you touch on that actually um, um part of my line of questioning was going to go more towards the i guess the clinical side of it and that is something that you are well versed in in terms of how the brain works the nuts and bolts and the science behind these things and maybe you can bring that into this answer as well but what are some of the things maybe you've observed in terms of how we approach these issues and maybe ways that we can do a little bit better as a, as a collective, as a society, in terms of treating these issues, in terms of treating these mental illnesses? Well, one, one of the things I, I do in my job is work with people who've got a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those can be young people having a, a first episode of a psychotic illness like schizophrenia. And I'm always so relieved when someone else comes into the consulting room with that person. Um, for a while, actually, I worked in Central Bradford, and quite often you, you'd see a sharp distinction between perhaps uh, a white Caucasian patient who would often come in by themselves, perhaps quite isolated, and the Asian community who would often come in en masse. You know, I might have five, six, seven people turn up in the consulting room. And that, that gave me another problem to deal with because at some point I had to try and see the person by themselves and I had to check they were happy to have all these people in the room. But at a very basic level, I was always so welcome to see that because it meant that that person wasn't alone. And certainly, you know, south of the border in England, there's something called the care program approach, which specifically actually says within it that the people who support you in, your, in the community should be able to come to appointments, should be there to support you. So, so I would say as, as healthcare professionals, we should be welcoming these things because the NHS knows that it can't make the country happy. The NHS knows it can't fix the fabric of society. So why, why are we not more able to, to welcome in these other supports in, into the consulting room? And that should include churches in the same way as it could include a support worker or a social worker or a more formally organized type of support. A lot of what we think of as, 
I come from the States and, and I don't know if it's similar over here, but we use what is called the, it's called the DSM essentially. And so what they do is they go through different symptoms of things and then they try to tag you with uh, a certain illness. And so I do think that it's important for classification and for understanding, but maybe some of the places where the church can come in or different other groups can come in, like mind and soul, can be in a, in a capacity that allows us to have not just a clinical level of understanding, but a more culturally appropriate, a more um, holistic, a more encouraging way of understanding these things. Do you feel like maybe in the way that we uh, equip people and the way that we educate people, do you think that some of these other things can become a little bit more, um, let's say, impactful in how we address these issues instead of only relying, as you said, on the NHS and only relying on doctors who might not have all the answers? Totally, totally. And I think, you know, doctors would be the first people to to say that. There's a great quote by by Carl Jung, who is one of Freud's protégés, mm. and, and Jung said, psychiatrists are the new priests. <laughs> and I can tell you, if, if, if I go and talk to my colleagues, they do not want to be the new priests. They are mm. quite happy to let the priests be the priests. They want to be psychiatrists. And, you know, there, there is definitely a place for medication. You know, if, if you have cancer, you want chemotherapy. If you've got active psychosis and, and voices, you probably need to think about a dopamine blocker. If you've got diabetes, you, you need some insulin. But th that's really just one, one piece of the jigsaw. And if you think about the role that faith communities bring to health, I, I kind of think about them acting at a number of different levels. So the first level is the basic level. It's behavioral. You know, if, if you're getting out of your bed once a week to go somewhere, that's better than sitting in your bed the whole time. So it's just pure behavioral activation. If, if we sit down, our bodies and our brains sit down with us inside us and we, we kind of sort of grind to a halt. You know, you think of the people who are marooned on desert islands, you know, life just slows down. Um, and then there's the community aspect. So there's the social aspect on, on top of that. And you've got a community around you. I, I think, you know, one of the things we need to make sure of in our churches is that we are enabling people to engage at different levels some some churches want full participation you know joy and happiness all the time and and that's not where everyone is actually and i i know a number of people who've had mental health problems who actually find a, a better place for themselves in the more liturgical churches because actually you can you can approach and de-approach liturgy much more easily than perhaps if you go to a full gospel yeah. church, Pentecostal church or a conservative evangelical church where you are expected to behave in a certain way. And that, that may not be where you are at at the time. But but you, you've got the behavioral, you've got the community, you've then got the sort of cognitive. And if you think about this from sort of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy point of view, mm. generally speaking, most faith messages are pretty positive, that you are loved, that you are known, that you are a son or daughter of God, you know, the, these things are positive things. Now, CBT is not about being positive. It's about being accurate. You know, there's nothing worse than positivity. Excessive positivity gets you through life absolutely fine until life throws you a lemon and then you go, ah, what happened to my positivity? But it is about being accurate. And if we can bring some of these more positive messages and truths from the Bible to sit alongside perhaps the negative self-talk that our depression is giving us, that will help us to have a more, more accurate appraisal of things. The, the fourth level is always more contentious, which is, is faith actually good for your health in a kind of supernatural healing, 
uh, magic Holy Spirit black box kind of sort of way. And I mean, I, I do believe it is. I do believe that faith does something to our health on average. But because we don't quite understand how Holy Spirit works and, and how all that works, it, it can be a bit sort of, mm, you know, it's tough to mystical. And, and you know, I, I think there's definitely a place for that. But there's also a place for knowing how our faith communities can impact our mental health. Because what if, yeah. if it's all black box and something happens inside my brain, I didn't know, then, then how can I help myself next time I go through a dip? Whereas actually, if I know that getting out of my bed, keeping in touch with that community who love me, remembering those positive biblical truths, then I've got some tools to, to help myself rather than sort of waiting for the miracle, because we might be waiting for quite a long time. Because unfortunately, in this, God is sovereign and doesn't always work on our time scale. So, so yeah. I I tend to think about it at those four levels. I think that part of um, the liturgical aspect of of the I come from a more full gospel background, so I think part of coming to England and experiencing that other side of it has has given me a new level of appreciation. I was speaking with Brian Heasley, who's, who does a lot of work with 24-7 prayer, and he was talking about this idea of stillness and rest. And, and part of that is in finding those, you know, sometimes physical representations that help bring reminders to different spaces, to, to just practices that allow you to get into those regular modes of thought that are a little bit more predictable, a little bit less dependent on your mood at the moment. And I think that those are really important in terms of serving as a, as a baseline for us to continue to grow our wellness, to continue to grow our health. Now, another thing that might vie for, uh, for position in this uh, space of spiritual wellness is this move at the culture I've seen, especially in my generation, but it feels like it's all around the culture. It's moved towards a sort of Zen, blase, maybe that's not the right word, but it, it kind of feels like this... Um, antithesis to what you were saying in terms of health being an addition and a vitality of flourishing. I don't know if maybe you could speak to this. Our, our cultures move towards relaxation as wellness and maybe what are those implications of, of that type of thought process? I think there's, there's probably two really important things to say. One is that the, the study of mindfulness is actually really important in working with chronic mental health conditions. And the reason for that is that medication doesn't work. Standard CBT doesn't work because you're doing it all already. It, it's how do we cope with those? Some of those, some of our brains, unfortunately, just give us these chronic negative thoughts. And do we respond to them the whole time? Or is it possible to be mindful of them? By which I mean to hold them in mind and to not react to them, to not repress them, just to say they are there. Another great Freud quote, repressed emotions don't go away they merely come forth again in uglier ways yeah so we need not to repress we need not to repeat we need to just be mindful so i think that school of buddhism has has given us the concept of mindfulness in our current western tradition but we mustn't let the buddhists steal it <laughs> if that makes sense, because it's not a Buddhist thing. Mindfulness is there in every faith tradition. It's there in the Sufi tradition in Islam. It's there in the Celtic tradition in Scotland, where I am. It's there in the, the traditions of pilgrimage. And you were just talking about 24-7 prayer. To, to have those sort of more meditative or contemplative might be a better word yeah. for Christians. But it is essentially mindfulness. 
one of the sort of leading proponents of um, mindfulness in mental health, a guy called John Kabat-Zinn, who, who is a Buddhist himself. He has another, another great quote. He says, mindfulness is no more Buddhist than gravity is English, just because Isaac Newton, dis Isaac Newton discovered it. I like that. And, you know, I mean, yes, Isaac Newton discovered gravity and he wrote it down. But, you know, I believe that the Australians also benefit from gravity. Otherwise, they would fall off the bottom of the globe. <laughs> You know, and and likewise, mindfulness is a generic human skill, which is learnable. And it's important, particularly in chronic sort of neurotic areas around that. And also, actually, you know, to a certain extent, chronic chronic psychosis. How do you deal with ongoing voices, for example? Um, you can put distracting music on, but actually to, to be aware of them and to, to not respond is is an alternative to medication. Mindfulness has got its place and it's not Buddhist. And there's a lot we can learn from various faith traditions and, and also secular studies around mindfulness. However, the whole Zen thing I find quite disturbing. And there's, there's a few reasons why I find it disturbing. First of all, Zen is not mindfulness. Your average Zen petitioner is not particularly mindful. They, they actually are quite unmindful yeah, because they're it's seeking. more mindless. It's more mindless. It's more, you know, I want to like, mm, 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 hum, I'm going to go to my happy place. Or anything. Yeah. And actually, they're often quite, it's often quite fragile. You know, you read these people who are sort of pursuing Zen. The other thing, of course, is that it's not Buddhism. Um, you know, if, if you read the Tibetan book of life and death, it, there's some pretty hardcore stuff in that that is a long way away from um, this sort of Western concept of Zen, which, as you say, is more about self-indulgent relaxation. I, I remember doing a, interfaith event a little while ago and i was i was there as a, it was a, a mental health event i was there as a, as, as a christian and um one of the guys was there was it was in a wheelchair and um i was chatting to him and he said oh i'm um i'm speaking from a buddhist perspective you can tell i must have done something bad in a former life because i'm in a wheelchair and he was kind of making a, a, a joke out of it but but actually, what he was saying is, is if you actually get back into Buddhist and, and Hindu sort of roots around reincarnation, that's what they mean. Yeah. And that's not the kind of trendy Zen kind of view. So I think, you know, we, we have to be very aware that this modern tradition of Zen is departing quite a long way from the teachings of Buddha, from the, the Hindu writings. And it is something that I think is created for for 21st century living and i know that people from the buddhist tradition have got, got views on it and likewise people from the christian tradition you know to follow jesus is not necessarily to be happy um it is actually to follow a savior who ultimately was persecuted if, if you look in the new testament you know one of the marks of active true faith is that you will be persecuted and it will be hard so where does that fit with Zen? It, it doesn't seem to fit particularly well. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I think part of what Christianity offers is that idea that we are not at the center of our own happiness. We are not at the center of our joy. We don't live the perfect lives because Jesus lived that for us. And so we tap into his death, life and resurrection in order to have access to that. But in tapping into that, you know, as you said, Part of that is the death, right? We have to self-sacrifice. They say, carry your cross. Real quick, an interesting quote to go along with this theme we've got going is one by the evangelist D.L. Moody. He says, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. 
it speaks directly to an idea that can be unpopular today, that the Christian life is one of continual revision or of perpetual struggle. It's not a singular moment of nirvana, but a lifelong sanctification process that results in us looking more and more like Jesus each day. Again, each day, it's a daily commitment that keeps us grounded in truth and rooted in love. As a final question, I know you're a really busy guy and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I wanted to know if there were any practical tips or insights that you can offer as somebody who's worked, you know, in a consulting role in academia, uh, around the world, really doing so much for the advancement of our understanding of mental health. Is there any practical tips you can offer people out there maybe listening today as to how they can begin this journey towards wellness? We're, we're having lots of quotes today, aren't we? So here, here's one more <laughs> quote. If, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. You know, I think sometimes we we come with a particular perspective. So, for example, we think if you are taking a scientific thing that mental health problems must be due to a neurotransmitter problem. If we come from a social perspective, we think they must be due to loneliness. If we come from a counselling perspective, we think they're due to repressed emotions and the person hasn't been given that unconditional positive regard. If, if we come from a spiritual perspective, then they must be fixed by prayer and or, or fasting or whatever it is. And invariably, I think things are multifactorial. And if you think there is one cause for a particular problem, you're probably wrong. You will come across people who have got particularly strong views around things. They are probably not fully understanding the situation. And, and the risk, of course, is that is that you feel worse. And a good test of if you know you're on the right track is that it makes you feel better. And I'll, I'll give you a specific example about that. People who feel guilty, if that guilt arises as a result of a sin having been committed and they come to Jesus and they pray for forgiveness, they feel better and they feel closer to God and they feel saved and forgiven and welcomed into the loving arms of God. If that feeling of guilt is not due to a sin, but is due to a symptom of depression, let's say. And actually, I mean, we're all sinners, of course, aren't we? But, but you know, no particular sin has been committed. And you are trying to confess for something you haven't actually done, or you're going on the hunt for something that you might have done. And that makes you feel unworthy. It makes you feel further from God. It makes you feel unwelcomed. It, it has a negative effect on you because you're trying to take a spiritual solution to something actually, which, which is a psychological problem, which is actually you need to be mindful <laughs> of those um, more chronic depressive self, you know, the aroma of, um, of guilt, if that makes sense. So beware of the, the single solution. And as always, when we do talks like this, people end up with more questions and answers. So what I would say is go to the Mind and Soul Foundation website. It's got a big search box. We've got loads of social media going on and you'll probably find some article or audio or, or, or video that answers your particular questions because I don't want to raise more questions and people <laughs> not know where to go to find answers. So the Mind and Soul be? Foundation website is a good Mind place and Soul to go. Foundation, oh, was that dot org or was that dot org. Mindandsoulfoundation.org. That feels like a good place to end. Once again, I was joined today by Dr. Rob Waller. He's a director both with the NHS and at the Mind and Soul Foundation. He's an advisor, a health communicator, and a man of faith 
who has helped author a number of books, including The Power of Belonging and The End of Worry. Next week, I'll be chatting with Phil Knox. He's head of missions to young adults with the Evangelical Alliance and is the author of a book called Story Bear. It was a wonderful conversation that centered on the power of narrative, especially in the context of relationship, and I do hope you join us. In any case, you've been listening to Time to Grow. Thanks for stopping by. Until next time, be well.